You are listening to a sermon from Emmaus Church LCMS. For more information, please go to www.emmauspasco.org. Behold, O Lord, a lamb of your own flock, a sheep of your own fold, and a sinner of your own redeeming. Amen. Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Live as people who are free, living as servants of God. 1 Peter 2.16. Live as people who are free, but live as servants. And if you take the Greek, actually, this is kind of a, 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 a... polite translation. The word is quite literally slaves. Live as people who are free, slaves of God. That seems weird, right? How do you, when we think of freedom, we don't think of servitude. We don't think of slavery. We have here a paradox of people who are free, but slaves of God. What does this mean? What can Peter be talking about when he talks about how we as Christians are to live as people who are free, It's supposed to guide our lives. Our freedom is supposed to inform our activity. And yet, that is the same thing as living as servants of God. Now, I want to help us understand this by kind of recognizing that we as Americans have a rather kind of complicated, almost almost convoluted understanding of freedom. And this was actually brought home to me, and and, and the the details of this were brought home to me. And I read a book last year by a guy named, a historian named uh, Colin Woodard called American Nations. And I've, I think I've spoken with some of you about this. It's, it's a book that actually looks at, let me move forward, okay, that looks at American history not in terms of states, but in terms of different people groups. And these different people groups are, are characterized in their each, in their unique history and their background and how they immigrated to the, to the U.S. And, and, and what's interesting about each and what I want to highlight for you today is that each of these people groups had a different notion of freedom, a different notion of, a different definition of what it meant to be free and we're, so I'm going to survey some of them with you. And then the thing is, is that all of these notions of freedom continue to exist in different and kind of confused ways in our current society. So let's begin up in the upper, in the New England, right? The, the origins of America. We have what he called Yankeedom. And this is really a, a, a culture shaped by the Puritan heritage. The Puritans came over to try to form a, a Christian society. And it has always had this notion of freedom as a well-organized Christian literate society. Freedom meant everyone was working together and for the same uh, Protestant work ethic. They found, and so with this notion of freedom, as, as everyone working together, they would first thing they do when Yankees would, would build a town, they would build a school and a church before they even build their homes. They would immediately set up the institutions that helped everyone work together and create a well-organized and free society. So freedom for Yankees has always kind of been linked to this utopian vision even when it kind of left behind the whole Christian part and it just said, we're going to create the well-organized society, which may or may not be Christian. That, that kind of utopian, we're free when we all work together, is essential to the Yankee notion of freedom. But if you go a little further south, and it's kind of hard to see, but if you go down to Pennsylvania, you'll see a different region called the Midlands. And Pennsylvania was really shaped by a different notion of freedom, really informed by the Quaker ethic of nonviolence and toleration, which emphasized that, that freedom 
meant different communities living together without having to assimilate to one another. I probably should have mentioned that with Yankees. Yankees stressed assimilation. Everyone should speak the same language. Everyone should work together because that's what a well-organized society was like. So the idea that we should all assimilate comes from Yankees. But Midlanders said, no, no, we should all be kind of free to do our own thing, which is why in Pennsylvania, you have the Amish who are still doing their Amish thing. You have this first place that Lutherans really settled in the U.S. and from a German background was in Pennsylvania, where they were free to stay Germans and stay Lutheran. And so the Midlands kind of prized uh, nonviolence and toleration of different people groups. And freedom meant, well, we all get along and tolerate each other's differences. But if you look over in New York area, there's, a, there's an even more radical version of this, what he calls New Holland, which is really New York City and Long Island, which really stressed that freedom was toleration on an individual basis. Everyone should be tolerated kind of doing what they're going to do and left to be themselves. And, and New Yorkers um, very firmly clung to this, especially when they were, and they actually are the reason we have the Bill of Rights in the Constitution. They're, the, our uh, amendments and our Bill of Rights comes from an earlier version of the Bill of Rights that was actually the Bill of Rights that New York won against its, its English overlords, insisting the government will not tell individuals how to worship or how to, how to live. So for New Hollanders, freedom meant individual autonomy. Let me, we are free to get, and we should be able to get along in community with our differences. If you go a little further south into the Virginia region, you see what we call the Tidewater. And this is the, the place of Jefferson and Washington and kind of the, some of the founding fathers. And it, and it saw freedom a little differently. Freedom kind of more along old world aristocratic lines. That is, freedom is bestowed by an aristocratic ruling class, normally of wealthy, well-educated citizens who, who are able to organize society for the well-being of all. And it's a very kind of old world. There was actually a, a strong dose of, of kind of loyalty to the king in this area because they, they saw freedom as something the king gives. And so freedom is not an inherent right that everyone has in Tidewater. It's something bestowed by a benevolent, well-educated lord who organized society for the common good and so that all could be free in some sense when they all were in their place. If you go even further to the deep south, you get a similar notion except it's explicitly tied to white supremacy. In the deep south, uh, the idea of freedom meant the, the black people were kept in their place and the white people were in their place on top. And so the institution of slavery was seen as integral to freedom, which is what white people could enjoy when black people were enslaved. And this is through part of the plantation culture and the deep legacy of the Deep South was an inherently racist notion of freedom that was actually rejected the Declaration of Independence and that all people were created equal. But probably one of the most interesting ways and one of the most influential is this big chunk you can see in the middle called Greater Appalachia. And this is the group called the Scots-Irish. These people who emigrated over, think, think Braveheart, when Braveheart moves to America. These are people who, for them, freedom meant, leave me alone. Don't tread on me. In fact, actually, that phrase, don't tread on me, was originally from a Scottish clan that was brought over. And it was, it was we see those flags with the snake, that don't tread on, that was a Scots-Irish greater Appalachian value. Freedom meant no one lived within five miles of me for these guys. Uh, so public education, no way. Uh, national government, and, and they would actually, the greater Appalachia, they were always this kind of wild card in American history. They, some of them fought for the British in the Revolutionary War, some of them fought for the, the states, because depending on who they thought would be most likely to leave them alone. <laughs> so, and it, when, when greater Appalachia spreads west, you get this notion of freedom means the lone ranger, the cowboy notion of freedom. I'm free from community, free to be left alone. 
Now, these are these are all kind of the, the basic building blocks of what Americans mean by freedom. And some of them are in conflict, right? The Yankees, freedom is all of us working together. And for Great Appalachia, freedom means leave me alone. Now, in all of these notions of freedom interact in different ways through our history. And I'm going to leave the book there because you can go read it and see how these work out throughout American history. But the point I want to make is that all of these notions of freedom still exist in our world. They all are part of your culture. They're part of the air you breathe as an American. And none of them corresponds to what the scriptures mean by freedom. Some are better than others, for sure. But all of them fall, fall short of being what Christians and what Peter means by freedom in this passage. Which means that if we're going to take seriously what Peter says here and what the Bible says about freedom, we have to be ready to be offended. Because it means that it's going to rub up against one of our basic convictions about what freedom means. So all of us have been influenced by these, and yet none of them capture what Scripture says. So, you've been warned. If I do not succeed in offending you in some way today, then I haven't given you what Peter has been trying to say. So you're warned. All right. So let's go back to the, Christian, to the text then. Knowing that this is our context, this is what we all mean by freedom. Well, what does Peter mean by freedom? Well... We have to go to the end of the passage. Christian freedom, and this is primal, this is really important. It means entrusting yourselves to Jesus' judgment of grace. Freedom means entrusting yourself to God. And specifically to Jesus, who gives us God's judgment in God's place. So, this is verse 23. He's talking about Jesus. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. But he su when he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to whom? To him who judges justly. So Jesus lived out freedom by entrusting himself to the God who judges. Okay, well, that in and of itself is not really great news, because that means that the God who created the human beings that, that you and I have hurt, the people that we haven't treated really fairly, the people who created us to, to, to love and honor our own bodies as, as image bearers of God, that means that he's the one who judges. That doesn't sound like freedom, actually. That sounds like terror, because it means that we have to be accountable to God someday. And we're accountable to the one who owns all things. But that's why verses 24 and 25 go on to talk about what this actually means. For he, said, he goes on to say, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In other words, God has handed his judgment over to Jesus. For Jesus took our sin, the thing that was going to judge us guilty, he took that in his body and he let it die with him that we might be judged righteous, that we might live in righteousness. And we have been healed, therefore, by his wounds. So here, for Christian, Christian freedom comes from entrusting yourself to the God who has handed his just judgment over to Jesus. So for Christians, freedom means saying, hey, guess what? I'm righteous because Jesus has judged me righteous through himself. Not because I am, not because I'm meritorious, not because I've done, I'm in and of myself, I'm a sinner. Jesus has judged me as a sinner, but forgiven because he has borne my sin in himself. And this is really important because this first challenges our notion of freedom as autonomy, that I get, to, that I'm free when I get to be myself and find myself and determine myself on my own terms. This is a core of our American idea of freedom, that, that I get to be free to make my own choices and adhere to my own religious law. Here, freedom comes from allowing yourself to be defined by God, to be ruled by another, by the Lord Jesus, who is crucified and risen, and who defines you as a sinner forgiven. And the truth is that when we allow ourselves to be defined by Jesus and we entrust ourselves to his judgment, we're made weirdos. 
to all those people who don't. That is what Peter goes to next. If we go back to the beginning, really what he's addressing in this passage is the fact that, that entrusting yourself to Jesus makes you an exile from the world around you, even from our own flesh, our bodily impulses. So we have to go all the way back now to verse 11 and 12 at the beginning of our passage because Christian freedom means living the good in the face of condemnation. Christian freedom means living the good in the face of condemnation. This comes from right out of verses 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, that is, as resident aliens uh, and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul and keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Later in verse 15, he'll say it in a similar way. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So Christian freedom makes us weirdos. Entrusting ourselves to Jesus' judgment makes us exiles, actually foreigners, immigrants to our, to our surrounding culture. Which, that means we've been, we've been placed under a Lord who we recognize is different from the Lord who's ruling around us. And that Lord calls us to, well, do the good. To value and speak the truth, even when it's unpopular. To do what is, what is just and good, even when it runs against our preferences and our own desires. We're free to be a people of justice and who live with respect for the basic human dignity of all people who are created in God's image. We're freed to, to, to trust that God's words, God's, the words of law that tell us what it, what it means to be human and how to live, are, are actually how they guide our life. We're free to be a people of action. For notice, he doesn't say they, you will silence them by telling them the truth. You'll silence them by doing good, by the way you live. So Christians are free to do the right thing no matter what the cost is. To do the will of God and therefore put to silence people who accuse us of being wicked. So this challenges our notion of freedom that, that saw, especially the Yankee notion of freedom, as building a Christian society. That it's our job to engineer society with, with rules that perfectly reflect Christian morality so that we all kind of fit in and we all recognize the same. Uh, we remember we talked about Christendom back when we did church history. But no, we have to recognize we are strangers and exiles and entrusting yourselves to God's judgment makes you a weirdo, a stranger in your own culture, an exile in your own culture, an exile who is committed to living by the law of God, even when it puts you on the wrong side of whatever the reigning ideas in your culture may be. But this doesn't mean, therefore, that we are exiles. This doesn't mean that we are rebels. That's the next part. Christian freedom means honoring and obeying existing authorities as God has, as God given authorities, but temporary authorities. This is in verse 13. Even though you're in exile, be subject for the Lord's sake. Remember, you've entrusted yourself to the Lord, to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up of evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So this notion of Christian freedom means recognizing that God has ordered the world in a certain way, and he has put authorities in place, even ones that are unjust. He's talking about Caesar here. Caesar was not a Christian authority. He was not a just authority. He was a, he was a bloodthirsty authority who, who, who enacted his authority by terror, terror and violence. And Peter says, honor him. Honor him. Yikes. 
That's not fun. And now there is a limit to this, right? Remember, we do, we do good. We do the right thing. So when, when honoring the emperor leads us to do the wrong thing, then we, we refuse and say, no, I must obey God rather than men. But when it's not an issue of obeying or disobeying God, we, we listen to the authorities, even, well, when they say things that we don't like. We, we recognize that we are part of a community, whether it be the empire or whether it be the church, the brotherhood, being a part of this community of strangers and exiles, even when it's challenging, even when the church does things that we don't like. Loving the brotherhood means being recognizing that freedom, freedom in Jesus comes from being part of a community. And, this, and all of this, though, remember, these are all authorities under God. That is, they are all instituted by God. Doesn't mean they're always right, but it means that they all derive their authority from God, which is why he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, and fear God. That is, the one, that is stand in awe of God and fear if you cross him because God has instituted these authorities. So that means, and remembering that even these authorities will one day answer to God. Now, this is deeply challenging to certain parts of our American idea of freedom. The idea that freedom means being left alone. That freedom means don't tread on me. That freedom means I can define myself over and against my community. No, it means recognizing there, there are authorities. God has put them in a place for a reason. They're not ultimate. Their authority is derived from God and is temporary. But they no, nevertheless must be obeyed unless they run us against God's word. And unless they do that, Christians have to obey. Christians have to submit to them and live in the authorities under the institutions that God has made and be ready to face the consequences when we do disobey for the sake of the good. And that's actually the next part. The last part of this is that Christians are free to submit to their authorities, but they're also free to suffer injustice nonviolently. They're free to suffer injustice nonviolently. And that's actually the heart of the, this passage Servants, which again is talking about slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and neither was deceit found in his mouth. This is perhaps the hardest thing for us to accept. This flies in the face of so many basic impulses and convictions that we have as American people, that, that when the leaders are wrong, we, we rise up and revolt, right? We have, we have a revolutionary heritage from our nation's history. And so when, our, when we don't agree with our leaders, what's the right thing to do? Rebel. Or when people wrong us, and, and we seek... Retribution. And we need to be clear, there are lawful, right ways to respond to injustice from authorities. We actually have that built into our system by God's grace. And there are, Christians are free to make use of lawful protest and lawful things like that. But when that doesn't get us the outcome we want, that doesn't mean we're free to disobey or rebel or re revolt or seek revenge. Now, and he's not, for, for, and, and Peter makes it clear, he's not talking about when Christians suffer for doing wrong things, right? He says, when Christians, uh, for what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? If, if when Christians break the law and we do wrong things, we recognize that there are consequences for that. When there are times when as exiles and sojourners, Christians, well, and, but there are times when Christians haven't broken the law and they will suffer unjustly, whether because they're Christians or, or for some other reason, because they're on the wrong side of those who are, on, who are in power. And the really painful response 
is to suffer it graciously. That is to exhibit the grace of God. Peter says, this is a gracious thing. He actually says it twice. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. To suffer non-violently, not to seek revenge or revolt. So you can, and how, how can you do this? How can we be free to do something that is so counterintuitive to our identity and so to our basic convictions about what freedom looks like? It only comes when you have entrusted yourself to the God who you know will vindicate you on the last day. That's actually why we began at the end, because that's where this all begins. That's verse 23. He who, Jesus who entrusted himself to the God who judges justly. You can only suffer nonviolently. You can only suffer injustice graciously when you know that there is a just God who gets the last word on human history, who gets the last word on, on life and death. It doesn't make this any easier. It doesn't make this fun. It doesn't make it feel right. But it is the path of freedom because it's the path of Jesus. It's the path of freedom because it's the path of Jesus. Because Christian freedom is simply following in Jesus' footsteps. That's what Paul said actually in the verse prior, that we were to this, you were called. And he says it again, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. See, Jesus already walked the way to freedom and it led him through each of these circumstances. He already he entrusted himself to the good judgment of his father, following the way to the cross, seeking God's mission and not his own. He did good. He lived honorably and graciously and self-givingly in the face of vicious and unjust opposition. He submitted to the authority of Pilate and to the religious leaders, even while reminding them of the true giver of authority. He suffered non-violently, without reviling, without and he willingly went to the cross to be crucified with the guilty, even though he was innocent, to be crucified unjustly. And he leads you now as a good shepherd along the same path to freedom. Through its joy of forgiveness, through its valley of the shadow of death, carrying a cross. For he said, take up your cross and follow me. All into that last and final unending Easter day, when all or will rise, and God will vindicate the lowly. See, this paradox of Christian freedom, this pain of Christian freedom that challenges all our basic ideas of what freedom should look like, it's nothing other than following Jesus. Because it's the paradox of Jesus, who was perfectly free Lord of all, God of God, yet made himself the servant of all. He was a perfectly free creator of the universe who holds the worlds, who became a baby in a manger who used his freedom to become a servant of sinful and cowardly disciples. He is the most perfect and just person, crucified, suffering unjustly as a guilty one, bearing the guilt of all people. This is the paradox of Christmas, when we celebrate God become flesh. This is the paradox of salvation, when we, when we celebrate that, that sinners, who are sinners and remain sinners until the day they die, are declared nevertheless saints because of Jesus. It's the paradox of the resurrection, when nail-scarred hands will come and pull you from your grave and bring you into a new creation, which is reigned over by Jesus himself, the good and gracious and just king, in which finding ourselves under him and entrusting ourselves to him, we will be vindicated and set free. So freedom for Christians means carrying a cross and following Jesus. It means giving up our autonomy and entrusting ourselves to Jesus' judgment. It means giving up our idea of the Christian nation 
and being willing to live as exiles, strangers, witnesses of a future and better kingdom. Freedom for the Christian means giving up revolution and revolt and submitting ourselves for the, to the authorities that God has placed over the, us, whether we like them or not. Freedom for the Christian means giving up our demand for justice now at whatever cost and entrusting ourselves to the infinite love and justice of Jesus. And also, admit, guys, this is hard. This is really hard, especially right now when things feel unfair. And I'll, and I'll be honest with you, I wrote this sermon and I went, went through this all Friday morning and I came out of my office, done, and my wife told me, the governor has extended the stay-at-home order for another month. <laughs> and I gave serious thought to redoing the whole sermon and talking about something else. But I decided in the end that maybe that was actually not the right idea and maybe we needed to hear this. We needed to hear that freedom comes from finding ourselves in Jesus and that freedom comes from finding ourselves under his cross and submitting to the authorities that he put over us. Because freedom comes in its essence, in its heart, from our basic Easter message. Alleluia, Christ is risen. When that's the story of your life, you are free. Whatever happens in the meantime. So, alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. And may the grace of our risen Lord Jesus, the love of Christ, the fellowship of the saints, and the justice of our God, may it watch you and protect you this day and to the resurrection of all flesh. Amen. This has been a message from Emmaus Church LCMS. We thank you for listening and invite you to find out more by visiting our website at www.emmauspasco.org. That's www.emmauspasco.org.